How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so each person can make sure they are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, just like being disobedient to a parent or violating the rules of some institution where we are, are, are out of fellowship or lose rapport or lose our standing with that institution, there must be a confession made, which simply means to admit wrongdoing. And instantly we are restored to fellowship and recover that rapport, the walk by the Holy Spirit, so that we can go forward in our Christian life. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a privilege we still have in this country where we still have true freedom, freedom to worship you, freedom to teach your word, freedom to proclaim the truth of your word. And we know that that over the last several decades that these freedoms have gradually eroded, and now we see that as that has increased, it is uh, the, the rate of the loss of freedom increases even more rapidly. And, Father, we pray for this nation. We pray for uh, men who will rise up, who have moral courage, and who are willing to lead and to serve in leadership to redirect this nation. And we pray for your grace upon this nation that the eyes of the souls of many people will be open to the truth because only on the basis of the truth of the gospel and only on the basis of the truth of the absolutes of your word Will there ever be a restoration of freedom in this nation? And people today seem to have forgotten what freedom is, and they are brainwashed with lies from the uh, uh, media too often. They don't take the time to educate themselves or to understand the issues, and so they vote according to emotion, whim, uh, many superficial reasons without understanding how they are destroying themselves. But this isn't new. We saw it as you've revealed it. In the time of Isaiah, the time of Jeremiah, the time of Jesus, again and again, when people turn away from the truth, they always end up enslaving themselves to sin and enslaving themselves to tyrants, both inside and outside. So, Father, we pray for your grace. We pray for courage. We pray for spiritual and moral courage to take a stand for the truth and to proclaim it with uh, love and mercy and grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Romans 8.28, and now we are um, getting into one of the other key words in Romans 8.29, and that is predestination, a concept that is, one, often misunderstood, but the reason it's misunderstood is because we all have this tendency, I don't care what your background is, your tendency and my tendency is that when we think we understand Scripture and we create a scriptural paradigm, a theological paradigm or theological grid, we then become intellectually lazy, and rather than look, looking and studying and trying to discern what that verse is saying in its context, what we do is we try to interpret that in light of our theology, not in light of its context. And that's bad. That's bad practice. And we all do it to one degree or another. But there are some systems that are more prone to it. In fact, probably a good deal of systems are more uh, more prone to this, uh, especially some of the great systems such as Calvinism on the one hand, Arminianism in the other. Uh, this verse... Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in, in one of Wesley's commentaries, he actually inserts 
concepts into the translation so that it works within his system and he can avoid the implications of eternal security because this is a great verse related to eternal security. But on the other hand, among Calvinists, there is also the equal uh, egregious error of taking terms like foreknowledge and making them equivalent to foreordination or election. And while there are these are concepts that are similar and that relate to one another, they're not synonymous, they're not identical. Otherwise, uh, the, the Apostle Paul would be uh, redundant in what he is saying in this verse, and he is clearly spelling out a progression that occurs uh, in terms of the thought or the planning of God as we look at it from a human perspective. So in Romans eight twenty eight and 29, we read, and we know that all things work together for good. And one thing that really hit me today as I was going over this for the umpteenth time in the last few weeks is how important it is to understand that Paul is writing this verse to comfort those who are going through adversity and going through suffering. And it's not just the comfort that comes from the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse that we know all things work together for good, we sort of stop there, or at least I have over the years, that we're thankful that God's in control and he works all things out together for good. But there's more to it than that. As you go through the rest of verse 28 and its connection to verse 29, it expresses the fact that what is going on and our response to it is all part of a plan that has been laid out and is overseen by God the Father. And so we can take comfort in knowing that the adversity that we're going through is part of a plan. It's part of a blueprint that is designed to ultimately to bring about the construction of spiritual maturity or edification uh, within our own souls and the construction of something new in our souls called the image of his son. And so the adversity is the only way we can get there. So this gives us a, a fresh perspective on this verse. Paul isn't writing a verse here, a theological treatise related to election and predestination and foreknowledge. He's not writing as a Calvinist or as a an Augustinian or as an Arminian or a <clears throat> any other school of thought. He is laying down a principle for comfort in the midst of adversity. And that often gets lost as we get through dealing with these other terms. Now, understanding these other ideas must be set within that particular context. And I think when we look at some of the other passages, that becomes clear. So we always have to go back to that important rule of context, context, and context. So we know all things work together for good. In context, all things are suffering, adversity that we go through as we pursue the objective of being a joint heir with Jesus Christ so that we're prepared to rule and reign with him. They work together for those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. There's another plan there. He has a blueprint, a plan. He has a roadmap to spiritual maturity, if I can use that as as another analogy. He's got a roadmap to spiritual maturity, and spiritual maturity is then defined as uh, being conformed to the image of his son in the next verse. Now, who is he talking to here? Is he talking to unbelievers or believers? He's talking to believers, isn't he? Now, that's one thing that just really hit me today because as we get into this and we're talking about foreknowledge and uh, predestination, there are too many people who, when they start talking about this in terms of election and predestination, are focused on these doctrines as they pertain to identifying the saved. And see, Paul isn't worried about identifying the saved here. He's focusing on, number one, he's focusing on on comforting the saved, 
but he is focused on the fact that these terms that we've that he's used called uh, predestined for, uh, for new, called for new predestined that these are terms related to a spiritual life issue. He's talking not here about how to become saved. This isn't a soteriological justification issue. He's talking about sanctification, how the believer is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the whole context here. We're not talking about uh, making sure you're among the elect or making sure you are among the predestined. What we're talking about is the fact that as a believer, there's a plan, and that plan is to conform you to the image of his son. So that shifts the focus a little bit. It's easy how it gets kind of slippery when we're dealing with these issues here, and all of a sudden we're talking about uh, soteriological issues in relation to phase one, uh, justification rather than the second stage, what happens after we're saved. And, and too many people spend all their time talking about phase one and justification without ever going past it. That, that's one of the failures in a number of denominations is you can go there and learn how to be a Christian for, for years, but they never answer the question after salvation, then what? And that's what this is focusing on is that stage after salvation. So Roman, we looked at Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29. We looked at, uh, we went down to 1 Peter 1, 12 to show that election, that, that, that uh, process of God's choosing a group, and here it's applied to the group of Jewish believers, members of the diaspora who are Jewish converts to Christianity, that's the that's what makes them that choice group and that that choice is according to a norm or standard or pattern that's what the greek preposition kata means it's translated according to here and that's what you find in every uh, greek lexicon is it means according to a norm or a standard or a pattern and it's the the election occurs the choice occurs on the basis of even or you could even say it's not quite cause, but it's close to that idea because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. So the foreknowledge, God's knowledge of what will take place in the future as part of his omniscience, is abundantly clear that that is the, what precedes election. That is, informs God's, God's choice. And that's even more clear when you get down to uh, 1 Peter 1.20, Talking about Jesus Christ, the, 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 he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, not foreordained, but foreknown, same word, that this is, uh, must be informed by the meaning and use of the word back in, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This is only 19 verses later. So it has that same idea, idea, foreknown has to do with God's knowledge of how things will be, uh, in the future. Now, for God, now let's just stretch our brains a little bit. In God's omniscience, He doesn't ever learn anything. He doesn't perceive things in terms of a progression. He perceives things as they will be all at once, simultaneously. For us, we look at them in terms of this before and after and succession of events. But in the omniscience of God, He knows all things instantly and completely and intuitively, and he's always known it that way, so that his knowledge is is exhaustive and it is complete. It never increases, it never uh, decreases. It's intuitive, whereas our knowledge is discursive. We learn things in pieces, and we learn things over time, and we constantly come to greater knowledge. So we looked at foreknowledge last time just to see that foreknowledge, our prescience, the idea that God knows what will happen ahead of time, but he doesn't make his selection of believers because he sees faith. And I pointed that out last time, and I can't make this point 
strongly enough within Calvinism, we have to understand the system is a system. It all hangs together as an integrated system. And within Calvinism, faith is meritorious. Faith is doing something good. It, it has merit. It has value to have faith. And therefore, to for the unbeliever to be able to do anything of value, including to believe, God must first change the nature of the of the believer. I mean, of the unbeliever, and that's called regeneration. And in high Calvinism, regeneration precedes faith. And God, the Holy Spirit, has His effectual grace, irresistible grace that works upon the heart of the unbeliever and changes it. And as an inevitable result, he will believe in in Jesus as Savior, and he will also inevitably grow. That's so. They reject our view of uh, foreordination, or excuse me, of foreknowledge, and they would say that that anything that God does on the basis of foreknowledge is letting man do its ultimately works. They don't understand faith is something anybody can do, therefore it's not special. It is a means, not a cause. And that's reflected in the grammar of the New Testament because when we have verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, the grammatical construction there in the Greek is a preposition dia plus a genitive, which means through. If cause were the idea, then Paul would have used an accusative case because dia plus the accusative means because. So we're saved not because of faith, through faith, because the cause is God's love and the cause is Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Those are That's the cause of our salvation. So we're looked at Romans 8.28 that were called according to the purpose of God, then that's explained as to those whom God foreknew. He also predestined. So foreknowledge, I closed out last time with this, this double circle here, concentric circles. Foreknowledge is a subset of everything that God knows. That's his omniscience. God knows all the knowable. He's always known all the knowable. And all the knowable includes not only what will happen, but what might happen, what could have happened. We'll look at that tonight. So Thomas Edgar put it this way in his article on foreknowledge. Thus, God knows everything that will happen if he causes it. See, the Calvinist says God only foreknows what will happen because unless it, if it's, and only because it will happen can God foreknow it. God can only foreknow what he, pre- what he has predetermined will happen. So therefore, God really doesn't know all the knowable. There's not just infinite possibilities out there that God's omniscience can grasp. But God's omniscience can grasp it because it's infinite. So God knows everything. What, what Edgar is saying is God not only knows everything that will happen if he causes it, if he causes, he knows what will happen if he causes only some of it. He knows what will happen if he merely allows it to happen. Since he's omniscient, he knows what will happen even if he allows the universe to be completely random. He knows what will happen regardless of the cause. Whether man can philosophically explain how this works is irrelevant, since man has no ability to explain something that only God possesses and about which man knows nothing apart from from scripture. So one of the problems I pointed out last time is too often we're trying to impose our view of cause and effect on on the creator. Now let's look at a couple of passages in scripture that give us some examples of how God knows what would have happened otherwise. Uh, In technical philosophy, these are called counterfactuals. A factual is a fact, what happened. A fact is that on... March the 6th, 1836, the Alamo fell. But what would have happened if the Alamo hadn't fallen? God knows. See, that's not a fact, but it's a counterfactual. What would have happened if uh, George Washington had been killed when he was fighting in the French and Indian War? What would have happened 
under any number of other circumstances that you can think of in history. Those are counterfactuals. What would have happened if you'd gone to another uh, school or university than the one you went to? What if you had chosen another job than the one you chose? What if you had married someone different from the one you married? Those are the counterfactuals, and God knows all of those. That's that's the technical term that um, philosophers use. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23, and this is that horrible period in David's life between the time when he knew that God was uh, anointing him, had anointed him already through Samuel, back in chapter 17, to be the king of Israel. But Saul is still on the throne. Saul is still God's man to rule Israel. And during part of this time, David was uh, the public enemy number one and most hated by Saul. And Saul has got all of his army out looking to kill David. And so David has been... Um, hiding now uh, among uh, part of the time among the Philistines. He fled to Gath. Gath is a city down in the Gaza Strip now. So if you know anything about Israel's geography, you know where that is. It's not in the land. It's down in the land of the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. And he's um, fled down there. And then after that, he left from there at the beginning of chapter 22, escaped to the cave of Adullam, and um, he is, uh, <clears throat> uh, then it's after that that Saul murders a priest. In chapter 23, uh, the Philistines are fighting against another town, Kilah, and they are uh, pressing it. Much like Sterot today, a small town in Israel is just the closest community to uh, the border with uh, the Ga- with Gaza, and the the Hamas are sending uh, missiles over and rockets over to Sterot on a, a regular basis. Fortunately, they have Iron Dome to defend themselves now. But it was that kind of thing. Kilah is under the uh, thumb of the Philistines who are stealing uh, their grain. And so David now uh, is, uh, inquires of the Lord in v- verse 2, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And David says, and then the Lord says in verse 2, go and attack the Philistines, save Kilah. But David's men say to him, now wait a minute, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? We don't have the resources to fight the Philistines. So David goes back to the Lord and asks the Lord again. And the Lord said, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. Verse 5, David said, David and his men went to Kilah, fought with the Philistines, struck them with a the mighty blow, took away their livestock, and saved the inhabitants of Kilah. Then it happened when uh, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, uh, now the high priest, um, comes to David at Keilah. He went down with his ephah, ephod with him. That was a sign that he was a high priest. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. So David, Saul said, okay, I know where he is. I can I can attack him. He's he's vulnerable militarily, and we can uh, we can lay siege to the town and capture him. So he calls the people together to war. Now they're going to war against David, verse 8. And when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. So now he's going to inquire of the Lord, and this is where my passage starts that I have up on the screen. Then David cries out to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? So he asks a very specific question. With the ephod, he, I believe, had access to what was called the Urim and Thummim. We're not sure what they were, uh, but they were stones that the high priest had that maybe they changed color, maybe they glowed, uh, we don't re- maybe they vibrated. We don't really know, but somehow God communicated direct revelation uh, through the uh, Urim and Thummim. So he inquires of God, will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Am I going to get betrayed? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? That's his second question. Is Saul really going to come? And and then he says, O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. 
He doesn't answer the first question. He answers the second question. Saul is definitely coming. Then David says again, Will the men of Kilab betray me? Will they deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. So what does David do? He leaves. David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. In verse 13, went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. So see, God in his omniscience says, this is what's going to happen. Saul's coming, and and Saul's going to come, and yes, the people will betray you. But David does something different, and that changes the whole scenario. So Saul doesn't actually come, and the people never betrayed uh, never betrayed David. So see, we have flexibility within the plan of God. There's the function of volition. David could have stayed there and had a fatalistic attitude and say, well, whatever happens, God will protect me even if I'm betrayed. Or he could take action and leave, and then none of the other things happened. God knew what would happen under other circumstances. It's not set in stone. Okay, 2 Kings 13.19 is another example. 2 Kings 13.19, so let's turn over a couple of books to 2 Kings. And this is a situation that occurs at the time of the death of Elisha. Elisha being the second great prophet in the northern kingdom during its worst period of spiritual apostasy under uh, Ahab and his descendants. And so Elisha's become sick with an illness. He's about to die. Joash, the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, came down to him, wept over him, and said, uh, Oh, Father, because uh, he was fairly positive, said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on the bow. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hand, and he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. So he's, he's using this as sort of a, uh, an object lesson to show from, from shooting the arrow that this shows military victory over the enemy of the Syrians. And then he's, and, and he makes the point, though, that you're only going to destroy them if you strike them until they are completely defeated, totally defeated. You're not going to have a, uh, uh, <clears throat> a peace with them and a line of demarcation like we drew back in the 50s between North Korea and South Korea. And see, still we have a problem today. Uh, you completely, totally defeat the enemy so they don't come back later. He said, and so this is what Elijah said, take the arrows. He took them, and, and, the, and, and he said to the king of Israel, that is, Elisha says, now strike the ground. Take those arrows and start hitting the ground. He didn't tell him to stop. He didn't tell him how many. He said, just hit the ground. And so he struck the ground three times, and then he stopped. And then Elijah got mad at him in verse 19 and says, You should have struck five or six times. But because you didn't, you're not going to strike Syria until you destroy it. Now you will strike Syria only three times. So what does Elisha know? He said, if you had only had the courage and stamina to keep hitting the ground, then you would have destroyed the king of Syria. But since you only struck the ground three times, you're only going to defeat him three times. It's not enough for a total defeat, so it's going to be a problem. But Elisha shows he knows what would have happened if he had only chosen to hit the ground more than three times. So God has made him privy to that information. He knows the counterfactuals, which would have happened. Isaiah 48:18 is another passage. It's obvious from just the verse that that uh, God knows what would happen under other circumstances. Oh, that 
that you had heeded my commandments. Actually, this is a conditional expression. Oh, if you had heeded, if you had only obeyed me, if you'd listened to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the seas, talking to the nation Israel. If you'd only listened to me, then you would have peace and you would have righteousness, but you didn't. So God knows what would happen if you had made other decisions. And then we have Jeremiah 38, 17 and following. Jeremiah 38, 17 and following. Let's just turn there. Jeremiah 38. The time towards the end of the uh, southern kingdom. Zedekiah is the king, uh, the last king of the southern kingdom. Then Zedekiah said... Uh, sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah has been in prison by the king. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I declare to you, will you not surely put me to death? Because I'm going to tell you the truth. and You're not going to like it, so you're going to kill me. Uh, so if I give you, tell you the truth, you're going to kill me. And Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah and says, as the Lord lives, who made our very souls... Notice he has a doctrine of creation. Zedekiah understood some truth. He might have been a believer, but an extremely apostate believer. Uh, As the Lord lives who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men uh, who seek your life. And then we get to the passage on the screen. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of armies, literally, the God of Israel. If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire. You and your house shall live if you surrender. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city will be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They will burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews who defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hands and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you, so it shall be well with you, and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender, that is the word that the Lord has shown me. In other words, God has shown that if you obey him and surrender, you're going to live and Jerusalem will not be destroyed. But Zedekiah disobeyed. And so he was he was destroyed. Israel was destroyed. The, the first temple was destroyed. And so we see, once again, God knows what would happen under other circumstances. The point of this is that God's foreknowledge includes alternate scenarios. We see this in the New Testament, Matthew 11, 21, and again in verse 23. Jesus pronounces a judgment upon these small towns along the Sea of Galilee because they had witnessed some great miracles. They knew Jesus was who he claimed to be, but they had rejected him. And Jesus says, Woe to Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It wouldn't have taken as much. They would have changed their mind long ago. They would have regretted their position if they had seen what you've seen. God knows what the alternative would be. And then he pronounced a judgment on Capernaum in verse 23, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven because they had this high social position, uh, you are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Of course, we ask the question, well, why didn't they, God give those kinds of miracles to Sodom and Chorazin and Bethsaida? And I don't know. But what this does show is God knows what would happen under other circumstances and other conditions. So that means that there are variables within history. As I pointed out last time, just as God created the design of the universe in such a way that even though sin brought this incredible amount of chaos into the universe and introduced an an unbelievable amount of chaos into the 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 DNA of the human race and brought death and disease and suffering. God so structured our DNA and our biological makeup and the makeup of the world as though to have the ability to handle that. 
and to be and to not be completely destroyed by it. So God is able to deal with all of the variables that come as a result of the what appears to us to be the randomness of, of human free choice. Now, foreknowledge then leads us to the next category in Romans 8, which is predestination. Those whom God foreknew, these same group of people, those he called, those he foreknew are the same group of people. He doesn't lose any. He doesn't get any more. That's what Charles Wesley and John Wesley couldn't get around because that tells you that the same group that he called, that he foreknew, that he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, uh, that he justified, those are the ones that are be going to be glorified. He doesn't lose any. Uh, for, for Wesley, he introduces a phrase in there, these he will justify if they persevere. If they don't persevere, well, they won't get justified and they won't get glorified because he didn't believe in eternal security. So he read that. He's not listening to what the passage is saying. Now, under predestination, I've got a couple of more quotes from you from well-known historical Calvinist theologians and documents. This first is from A.A. Hodge, Archibald Alexander Hodge, the father of, of Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge was named for Archibald Alexander, who founded a school called the Log College. It's a small uh, in-house training school for pastors in Princeton, New Jersey. Today we know of it as Princeton University. And um, A.A. Hodge uh, was named for uh, Augustus Alexander, who was uh, the first uh, theology professor at the Log College. And there was a string of Hodges, Archibald, I mean, uh, uh, Archibald Alexander Hodge, I mean, Augustus Alexander Hodge, uh, Charles Hodge, and then Casper Hodge, who went into the early part of the 19th century. And then one of Charles Hodge's uh, well-known students, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, th- this was a theological dynasty in uh, the Northeast, that in many ways, though we would not agree with their, their their degree of Calvinism, in many ways because of their staunch defense of the truth of Scripture, inerrancy, inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God against the onslaughts of liberalism and liberal theology in the 19th century, uh, it, it lasted for their, their impact has lasted to the present time in evangelical Christianity among those who are conservatives and fundamentalists, because they are the ones who were the brain trust that really lay, laid down the foundation and the theological arguments for inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And to that we owe them a great and tremendous debt. They they put their finger in the dike even though everybody else around them was pulling their finger out and running for cover. They did a great job. But we would not agree with everything that they said. Here's what he says about how he defines predestination. Predestination is that which is designating only the counsel of God concerning fallen men, including the sovereign election of some and the most righteous reprobation of the rest. That's called double predestination. Some are predestined to heaven, the elect. The others are predestined to reprobation. Now, an earlier document, British English document, rather, in the 17th century was the Westminster Confession of Faith, where uh, uh, Presbyterian Anglican divines came together and hammered out basic theology of the uh, Reformed Anglican Church in the 1600s. Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 3, paragraph 3 states, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, that's they're stating that as, as, as the goal in this activity, this soteriological activity, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. That is, again, double predestination. If you ever deal with a strong 
Orthodox Presbyterian Church or a strong Calvinist, this is their doctrinal statement, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Under paragraph 5, we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith, or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature. You see, that excludes anything. No foresight whatsoever is involved in God's election. Or any other thing in the creature, his conditions or causes, moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. So you see, they remove, God selects who will be saved and who will not be saved, but he doesn't access his knowledge to do it. There's no room for his foresight, for his actual knowledge of the way things will be. Another uh, de- uh, definition from the Dictionary of Theological Terms states, thus, reprobation has two parts to it. A, preterition, there's a good word for you. It showed up in my, I have a dictionary uh, application, dictionary app on my iPad, and it gives me a new word of the day every day. Preterition showed up as the word for the day last week. I knew what it meant. I said, that's not a new word. Give me a new word. Give me something I don't know. Preterition, or the passing over of some in the decree of election. This is the sovereign prerogative of God. As Calvin long ago pointed out, God owes no man anything, and no man can justly argue against the righteousness of God in passing him by in election, so leaving him to his own sinful self-determination. Or it means, uh, or the second part of reprobation is condemnation, the act of the sovereign judge. It is passed upon sinners. No man will be damned except for sin. That's the negative side of predestination. Then from the pocket dictionary of theological terms, predestination is defined as the sovereign determination and foreknowledge of God. Some theologians connect divine predestination with the central events of salvation history especially the death of Jesus as foreordained by God. In Calvinist theology, the doctrine of predestination more specifically holds that God has from all eternity chosen specific people to bring into eternal communion with himself. Some Calvinists, this is what I classify usually as high Calvinists, some Calvinists add that God has also predestined or ordained the rest of humankind for damnation. Now, uh, just a word. One of the reasons I call them high Calvinists is that's a, a better term. Some people call anybody who's a little more Calvinist than they are a hyper-Calvinist, but that's not an exact term. Actually, these terms, low Calvinist, um, high Calvinist, and hyper-Calvinist are technical theological terms. A hyper-Calvinist is someone who believes that God has decreed who will be saved, and they will be saved whether you give them the gospel or not. So as one Baptist leader um, told a young missionary in the end of the uh, uh, 1700s, uh, God is going to save the, the, the elect in India whether you go there and take them the gospel or not. That's hyper-Calvinism. Uh, high Calvinism is just five-point superlipsarian Calvinism, and uh, we won't get into all of that. So we have the Greek words for election. The Greek words for election, we have the term praharizo, the uh, prefix pra, the preposition pra, of course, means ahead of time or beforehand. And the second term is uh, harizo, which is the root of the word. So it's, again, a compound word, as we saw with uh, a prognosco. Uh, Prahorizo means to decide upon something beforehand. To decide beforehand, uh, this is according to Arten Gingrich, uh, BDAG uh, lexicon, 
or to predetermine. Notice they don't use, define it as predestination. The point that we'll see is that predestination really isn't a correct term to translate praharizo at all. It, um, it implies some things that are not, uh, not in evidence in the pas- passages. But for, to decide upon something ahead of time. The issue is what are we deciding upon? The term harizo, the root. Now, one of the reasons we have to be, I go to the root here, is because unlike prognosco, we only have a few uses of praharizo in the New Testament. Prognosco doesn't have that many either. So you go to the root to come, somehow get, see if you can get some insight uh, into the meaning because meaning should come from usage, and if there's not very many examples, then you're somewhat limited. But you have to be careful not to commit what is called a root fallacy, which is where you take the meaning of the root word and then and that shapes the meaning of the compound word that is built upon it. So harizo is the basic uh, meaning of to separate ent- entities and to establish a boundary. And it has the idea of defining ideas or concepts or setting limits or explaining something. Um, and the second meaning means to make a determination about an entity, to appoint something ahead of time, to fix something ahead of time. So it has a, a range of meanings. So basically it means to decide upon something ahead of time, and it relates to God determining something beforehand. Or to, it means to decide a destination or a destiny ahead of time. Uh, God has decided a destiny for the church as a body of believers ahead of time. He has a plan, a roadmap. And that roadmap is everybody that, that trusts in Christ needs to grow to spiritual maturity so they can rule and reign with Christ in the future kingdom. And the only way you're, you're going to have the capacity to do that is if you have your character transformed so that you are in the, you, you, you are like Christ and not like fallen Adam. That's what he states in Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, when he, he knew of all the options, he knew who would respond in faith as non-meritorious. He also predestined them, dealing with them not just as a group, but also as individuals to be conformed to the image of God. He set forth a plan. He set forth a, a, a he appointed them to a destiny. Does that mean that they can say, you know, I don't want to play that game. I'm going to go wallow in the pigsty like the, uh, uh, like the prodigal son. Yes, they can do that. God, but God has still appointed an end game. And that end game plan is for them to be conformed to the image of his son for a purpose that comes up in the next verse that he, that is Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. The issue, the many brethren are all of us that he's not the firstborn alone, but that he has a cadre of qualified believers from the ages of of the church age, from all the centuries of the church age, who will rule and reign with him in the kingdom. The emphasis here is not that Jesus might be the firstborn, because he is that. He is the preeminent one. That's what this term, the term firstborn means. But that he will be the firstborn among or with many brethren. He's not going to be like David with only three or four hundred mighty men out in the wilderness. He's going to have hundreds of thousands of brethren who are qualified to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. Now we see some other senses of the word predestination in Scripture. There's only six passages, five other than the one we're looking at, where the word praharizo is used. In Ephesians 1.5, we're told that God has predestined us. He has set as our objective, as, our, as the goal for every believer, adoption as sons, adult sons, by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And in verse 11, in him, that is by virtue of our being in him, our uh, identification with Christ, our position in him, Also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined 
Notice the predestined in verse 5 isn't predestined to spend eternity in heaven. It's predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. In verse 11, that adoption as sons, that specific uh, adoption not just as children but as adult sons, is related to inheritance, which is what we've been talking about in Romans 8. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according or having a, a, a destiny set beforehand according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God set a destiny. He says, I've got a plan. I'm not just going to save them and say, oh, good, we're happy. They're going to come and be in heaven with me forever. But now that they're saved, they have. there's an objective here. Now that they've started the first grade, the objective is to graduate from high school. Now that they've started the training by becoming part of the family, the destiny is for them to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now that they've entered into the family of God, there's a training that has to take place so that they can be an adult son and enjoy all of the privileges and responsibilities of being an adult son. The word's used again in another passage in Acts uh, Acts 4.28 and in Acts 4.28, it appears the context from the context that this is not talking about uh, being predestined to uh, salvation. It's talking about something completely different, to do whatever your hand, it's prayer to God to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined to have been done. God, work out your plan and purpose in history. It's not talking about the individual uh, selection and predestination of some to salvation and some to eternal condemnation. That's not even in the context. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, Paul says. What we're, what we're teaching is never before revealed information. That's what mystery means in the, in the New Testament. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. So God had in his eternal omniscience the concept of what would be revealed in the word of God. That's what God predestined was the word of God. It's not predestined to eternal salvation or eternal condemnation. In Luke twenty-two twenty-two, truly the Son of God goes as it has been determined. Uh, has, it has been set forth by the plan of God. Again, this passage is using uh, praharizo, but not in the sense of selection for salvation or condemnation. So again, we, we, we keep running into this particular problem. Here are some other verses I have up here where the noun is used, but it, it basically comes to the same point that it's not related to individual selection for eternal life or, or, or not. So in closing, just to wrap it up, Genesis one twenty six and 27, God created the human race in his image. When Adam sinned, that image was marred, defaced, corrupted, but not destroyed. Every human being is born in the image and likeness of God. We are still finite representations of God. We have self-consciousness so that we can have God-consciousness. We have mentality and intellection so that we can think God's thoughts after him. We have a conscience so that we can know God's will and be obedient to that which is right versus that which is wrong. All of this is part of the related to the makeup of God. And so this, this composes uh, the, the soul, which is our way we represent God and work that out through our uh, physical bodies upon this earth so that it is through them that we fulfill the mission, which is to rule over the birds of the sea, the, fish of the, uh, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, uh, etc., so that we're created in the image of God, that image is defaced and corrupted by sin, how do we get back to where we were supposed to be? The writer of Hebrews 
states it in five verses, quoting from Psalm 8. Uh, he introduces this statement. This is one of the most significant passages for understanding the spiritual life in all of the Bible. He introduces this by saying, but one testified in a certain place saying, that's just how he's introducing this. It's David writing Psalm 8. And it's a direct quote from the from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? God, why do you care about the human race? What's so significant about human beings? I've already told you, it's from Genesis 1, 26 and 28, it's that we're in the image of God. But the psalmist is saying, what's so special about man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. We don't have the capabilities of angels. We're lower than the angels. But God has crowned us with glory and honor and set us over the works of his hands in terms of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We're to rule over the creation. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. The point here is that that in the corruption of the fall, while we're still in a position of authority over creation, we can't fulfill our ultimate mission of ruling over creation because of the chaos of the fall. That So the chaos of the fall has to be remedied and creation redeemed by Jesus. That's Romans eight seventeen and following. In Hebrews two nine, the writer of Hebrews says, "But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, like the rest of us, as a human being, for the suffering of death crowned him with glory and honor, because he executed the plan of God." And he led a sinless life, and because he's uh, Philippians two uh, five through nine, he uh, submits himself uh, by in obedience to the will of the Father for the suffering of death, and because of that, he was crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste, and this means might fully uh, take in or, or fully uh, in, in fully. Uh, enmesh himself, I guess, uh, fully take in death for everyone. It's not taste like taking a little nibble. It's fully taking it in. Tasting death for everyone, verse 10, for it was fitting for him, that is God the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. See, look, look, who comes to glory? Uh, We have been crowned as human beings, verse 7, with glory and honor. And the creation's supposed to be put under our feet, but it's been all screwed up because of sin. Then Jesus comes along, and he's glorified because of the suffering of death that he endured as a payment for sin for everyone. And now, in conclusion, it was fitting for God the Father, for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons, that's all those other believers, to glory, their originally intended position, to first... I'm inserting that so you understand the the order of events, to make the captain of their salvation mature through sufferings. Jesus had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. Not that he was disobedient, but he had to grow up and mature as a believer. He had to learn to eat. He had to learn what utensils to use to eat which foods with. He had to learn that when his mother said to do something, that he did it. Now, he never disobeyed her. He, but he had to go through that process. He had to grow up. He had to learn Hebrew. He had to learn to speak it. He had to learn to write it. He had to learn to read the Torah, and he had to learn to memorize it. And when he went to the went to the temple when he was uh, 12 years old and he just confounded all the religious leaders, he did that because he was sinless and he did it out of his own human ability. He, he's not saying, okay, wait a minute, I'm going to pierce the wall into my omniscience and I'm going to really, really screw these guys up by using my omniscience to confound them. Jesus did it from his humanity. If he didn't, he violated the whole principle of kenosis that's laid down in Philippians chapter 2. He's living his life on the basis of the Holy Spirit 
in his limited humanity by depending upon God, not by handling problems and challenges to his spiritual life by depending upon his divine power. He's doing it in his humanity to show what we can do if we would just trust God. And so when we put all these things together, we see that, that the theme that runs along with predestination and with foreknowledge is to handle suffering and to understand the purpose of suffering so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And that only comes through spiritual growth, and we have to learn obedience to the things we suffer just as Jesus did. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 8. So next time we'll come back and we'll press on to Romans 8.30 and beyond, which won't be quite as rugged and detailed as getting through these two verses. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, that we might be comforted by the fact that you have a destiny for us, and that is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and that we are uh, to pursue that destiny on the basis of our volition. We Every day we have to choose, are we going to live for you or are we going to live for ourselves? And, Father, this is to challenge us that no matter how tough life gets, what adversities we face, we need to continue to press on, for it is through uh, the suffering we encounter that we learn to trust you and that you use that to develop maturity in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.